0: Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Danielle Cave and cup of coffee is brought to you by At Home. We're actually both in Queensland this episode, which is really cool. I was just saying to Danielle that we're prob- closer than we think. So I'm actually just having a nice latte. I've been out in the sun all day uh, doing some cooking for a workshop at Bond. Uh, and so I thought I'd cool down a bit and have a nice conversation this afternoon. What are you drinking, Danielle?
1: I have an iced latte as well. Oh, cool. It's so similar. It's looking a bit gloomy out there today, but it's still definitely heading into summer.
0: Or oh, we're, we're like right on the brink. I went to the cafe on the weekend with my partner and we met a uh, girl who's come from um, uh, England. And she said, oh, I'm struggling today. And I was like, mate, this is the turning point. This is like the time in spring where everyone knows summer's coming and it's pretty much summer straight away. And she thought, I might have to go back home. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, you're in the wrong state. Like, oh, it's quite funny.
1: Uh, it's not summer yet. <laughs>
0: No, that's right, yeah. It's, it's not yet. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's, it's close, but it's not quite there. But that's so cool. I think that's the first instance where I've been having the same beverage uh, as the guest. So that, uh, cheers to that. That'll be nice. Yeah, I
1: really
0: thought about it and I couldn't do a hot drink this afternoon. Yeah, no, exactly right. 100%. And now we've got something really exciting to talk about that we've just talked about off air. Danielle is possibly 24 hours away from submitting her thesis. How do you feel?
1: it's a strange feeling I'm not gonna lie like it's been a long time coming and equal parts like excitement and also kind of you know like it's still not over it'll just be submitting the document I still have to go through examination and probably make some changes Um, but very exciting it's felt like all this year that it's just never going to be over I'm not gonna lie and I'm about to have probably a three-month break from having to read it or look at
0: it. Yeah, yeah, wow. And that's awesome. And what do you, you know, will you be, uh, I guess, working in that break or will you have some sort of project to work on? Are you just going to go full off-grid and just um, do some stuff that you want to do?
1: Well, now's the fun part of almost, oh, well, I've got more time and there's papers that I could write up from my thesis. So, I'll probably enjoy the start, like at least the first month of just having my weekends and evenings back, um, a bit more work-life balance. Mm. Um, and then I think there's definitely one paper that I want to get written while I'm still thinking about it. And I already have it written as uh, two chapters in my thesis, so it should be pretty quick to pull together into a publication.
0: Yeah, wow, it's almost like an addicting thing. Hey, like once you, when, I think when you get you know, and I think I'll feel the same when I get to your level because you know what to do now. You can just do it and it's like, yep, I can put this paper together, submit it, or I can get some feedback on it. Whereas, like, when you're a student and, like, you go through the timeline of, like, the first year, you're kind of learning what to do. The second year, you, you know, give it a go yourself, but you have a lot of supervision still and it's kind of like, I'm learning what I put into practice. And then the third year, it's like off the leash type of thing. And then once that, I guess, submission date is like, well, you're most likely, you know, a doctor or you are going to be, but, like, now you're in your own shoes, and it's, like, which is good, like, you know, to go through the process. Um, Is that how you found it? Like, where you can just, like, you know, compared to two, three years ago now, it's, like, bang, I can just jump on, write a paper, like, whereas if you, I don't think you would imagine yourself saying that, you know, two years ago, um, not now, but back then.
1: It's so true, and even I think of how much time it took me to write my first paper and even my second paper, and then the fact that, you know, a few years later, you can sit there and go, no, I feel quite confident that I can, you know, this is what I would put into it. It's technically two different studies, but on a very similar uh, kind of uh, area, I suppose, or like they, they're they not um, big enough on their own to be two publications because both studies were impacted by COVID. But I think I've got enough to pull together as almost like a pilot study and some um, creation of tools for the sector. So... Yeah, you're already starting to think about what's next, which is so funny. There is no break, is there? You're going, well, that's in tomorrow. And then, what, come next week, I can probably actually map out what I think this paper's going to look like and start writing it.
0: That's right. And I think it's also part of the, I guess, when you become a lecturer or an academic, it's like you're, depending on your percentages, as we just talked about off here. You, you may not get those opportunities um, as often as you'd like to do something, like writing a paper or uh, sitting down and thinking. You know, my supervisors always say to me, like, a PhD is great. You have three years to sit down and think about so much. And it's like, yeah, but there's so much to do still. I can't just be like daydreaming, walking on the beach, like thinking about, um, you know, philosophy. I've got to really, I've got stuff to produce, right? Um, And so that's really cool that I think you'll have some, you know, I guess some nice time to sit down and kind of, Um, not put the thesis behind you, but it's in someone else's hands now and you have to kind of, like, realise that and be like, right, let's do something else or move on or um, try something new maybe.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, compared to an entire thesis, a paper just seems like such a small task. Like, when you put it in that perspective, it's going, that's easy. This is, like, you know, half the size of one of my chapters. I can do that so quickly now.
0: Wow, that's such a good perspective. I'm gonna take that into when I'm doing stuff in the future. I'm like, hey, you, get, you don't have to do it. You have to do a big thesis one day. So this paper's nothing, like you know. So um, that's really cool. I um, I usually finish with this question, but because we're like, I guess in that type of type of um, I guess part of the the conversation. What is next? You know, after tomorrow, or you know, thinking in the next year, or like, what's next for you?
1: Well, I'm probably a little bit different to most people finishing, and also was, well, my PhD was really badly impacted by COVID. The timing probably couldn't have been worse, but then it's led to other opportunities. So, um, I started working full time um, as an associate lecturer January 2021. So. I'm still on my current contract until the end of the year and should be finding out soon if that's getting extended uh, into 2023 or not. Uh, but I guess that feels a bit different. I didn't expect to be finishing and already working full-time. Uh, so at least I've kind of got that work to carry on. Um, but in that work uh, my current research projects all related to my teaching. So I I guess it's kind of actually having to think where am I going to get funding to do more research like my PhD still has unanswered questions that I would love to be the one to answer Mm. Um, and I haven't really had the headspace over the last couple of years to even start thinking about future research um, from my PhD research so hopefully that'll give me a little bit more time to think about that and and see what's out there but I definitely think I'm going to stick in this almost academic uh, career pathway.
0: Yeah, awesome. Very good and confident answer. Nice work. I like that. And, and with your teaching, so I guess to try and understand how you've got to where you are now, let's kind of, you know, what is your area of research? Uh,
1: so I guess it's predominantly in food service management um, and in residential aged care. Uh, sorry, I do teach in food service management as well in our Master of Dietetics program at the University of Queensland.
0: Cool. That's awesome. That's kind of my little, like I'm not very, I'm, although I'm in the food service and reading about it, I'm at the very end of like the waste management and the, and the plate waste and the aggregate food waste. So I'm not necessarily like, you know, um, you know, menu design or, uh, even so getting the right machines and stuff that we used to learn, um, when I was in my undergrad or, or the, um, uh, I guess the diversity of the menu in terms of having like, you know, Denise. Taught me actually in my food service uh, subject, and it was. I just imagine the workshops that we did. I can think about them now where you, the chicken can't be on Monday, then it can't be till Thursday, and, and stuff like that. So um, it's really cool to, I guess, reflect on that and think about the types of things that you would be teaching to students in a food service subject.
1: It's still a steep learning curve, though. Like, I think that's the almost the beauty of doing a PhD, <laughs> if you become an expert in a very niche area in a a broad topic and sorry it was almost uh, hard work stepping back last year when I took on some of this teaching and having to spend quite a bit of time refreshing on other areas that I haven't touched on in my PhD. Like I knew a bit about it, uh, but to actually teach it, you need to have a pretty good understanding of how to articulate. Uh, it's not as easy, unfortunately, as just going, go and read this uh, textbook chapter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I found that I knew a lot about something quite uh, niche that I probably got to speak about for maybe an hour (laughs) in my semester Uh, but everything else it was brushing up and yeah following up with other people I was quite lucky that a few of my colleagues have done PhDs in a similar field um, one on satisfaction one on menu choice so getting to pull from different experts as well to talk about some of the stuff that they've worked on so I didn't have to uh, talk to everything.
0: Yeah and also giving them that's a really good opportunity to show the students how much stuff can be done you know in something like food service like it's not like the most sexy part of dietetics but it's a very essential and important part in in any I would you know clinical public health or uh, you know even sporting setting like that's very food service dominant as well so uh, definitely an essential area so that's really cool to hear that how did you how did you get there so I want to go all the way back to the start of you know Danielle undergrad nutrition or even if you did something before that and then kind of tell us through. He started there and then got to where, you know, today, 24 hours out submitting.
1: Okay. So I want to say by the end of high school, I knew that I wanted to study nutrition and dietetics. I'd always been interested in like the science subjects, biology, uh, chemistry and food and cooking. Um, And that kind of led me into starting off in a Bachelor of Nutrition Science um, and at that point, uh, pretty much from year one, I wanted to get into dietetics. Uh, so I did the bachelor, and then went on to do my master of dietetics at the University of Queensland. Um, pretty much through most of my degree, I thought I wanted to work in private practice, which I'm yet to do. So it didn't quite go down that path in the end. Um, and I, I did. Think that I wanted to go down that path, but was also really open to to other things, and always had an interest in research as well. Uh, so by the time I got to my final semester, we had the choice of doing like an elective placement in an area of interest. Um, it could be something like mental health or peds or sports, something a little bit more niche than your usual fields, or doing a research project. And I posted a, a research project, and also did a food service placement at the time within aged care, um, and. I was probably lucky in terms of while I was doing that, um, my two supervisors put out an, espresso, an expression of interest going, We've got this project that we're trying to find a student for to do a PhD. Um, and it just fits so nicely in what I was interested in that, you know, at that time I was already going, Oh, research is quite interesting. I think I could do something like this in the future. At the time, I wasn't really thinking of going straight into a PhD. But when the opportunity presented itself, it was just exactly what I wanted to do at the time. I was like, okay, getting my application in. And literally a month after graduating, I started my PhD, which I don't think many people are crazy enough to do.
0: Yeah, well, one month straight out, bang. It's not like like it was a... um uh, afterthought it was kind of like here it is here's the opportunity and you snagged it and that's really you know commendable to just to be like because I can I can compare it to my experience where I had a year off and I was like I want to go back to uni and do a pit like I just got out you know where <laughs> and that's what some people think like I want to go to the real world and do this and it's like use these skills and stuff but it's like if you feel comfortable and it's the right move at the time it doesn't matter when you do it you know if it's a day after a month after 10 years after you've done your undergrad like um or even your honours or masters, like it's a, it's such an amazing experience.
1: And it is about timing. Like I think I was in that perfect moment where it was at the very start of my final semester. And I knew that applications had to be kind of in within a month. So I had to make a decision pretty quickly while I was still even just exploring research in a master's project. Um, And it just really interests me. Uh, Like the topic I don't know what was it about it like it wasn't even like it was something that I'd been thinking about doing it was just when I heard it it was like okay let's give this a shot and then let's see what happens and yeah I'm so glad that I that I did it and the timing was probably right for me in terms of I don't know if I could have gone back like some people it definitely works for them to go out and, and work and uh you know learn all about the area that they're practicing in and then do a PhD but I think I probably wouldn't have come back um, because it is quite hard to return to study when you're finally free.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I. Um, no, that's so cool. And so that was a month, of, you know, a month out of being undergrad, and then you know, being a dietitian, a bachelor of nutrition dietetics, and then you've moved. So all at the same uni, just two. Yeah.
1: So I did my bachelor at QT, and then masters, and now PhD, and now working at UQ.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And so you, I'm trying to think. UQ is UQ the really big, pretty stone buildings? Oh, that's yep. awesome! That's so cool. Like, if listeners, if you haven't had a chance to go visit Saint Lucia, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a
1: beautiful. Campus. Oh,
0: it is amazing. Like, I I've done some stuff there, like just visiting or or some um, webinars or you know um, back when they were you know um, seminars, um, and I was like, this place is sick, and like the gym is like five five um stories with like um with a big hole in the middle and like oh it's just like it's a very cool place um so that what a nice place to work
1: yeah it's it's a really great campus and a nice place to just be in especially if you're spending a lot of time there over the years
0: that's right and so food service and aged care can you talk us through a little bit about um you, you know your research projects or you know um your PhD topic um and share with the listeners, you know, I guess, you know, if you have a, a very clear narrative of study one, two, three, or if you've, um, if you've got more than that or less, you know, um, the yours.
1: Yeah. It is a bit clearer now. Um, look, where I've ended up is not where I thought or not where I thought the project was, I guess, starting from, um, the idea that basically got pitched to me when it commenced was there's a new fortification ingredient. That's a liquid. Um, that isn't to market yet. There's not really anything like this that has ever been used. Um, we're trying to find a solution to why the aged care sector in particular has a reliance on oral nutrition supplements over a food first <laughs> approach. Um, you know, it was kind of, we think the problem might be around cost or about the kind of skill or time that's required to actually create recipes using traditional powder ingredients or different foods. Um, and we'd like to have a, a solution that's going to be really easy to use, but we have no idea if staff actually think it's easy to use, would buy it. Uh, Will residents even like taste of it or want it going into their food? You know, it it hasn't really been done. There's no research on it, but this could be, you know, a solution. Uh, to the problem. And at the time, I had spent very little time in the aged care sector or really didn't know a lot about the difficulties or why this was happening. It was very much about almost other people telling me from their observations. And I was fortunate at the start of my PhD to work casually as a dietitian in aged care. So that built an understanding of how it actually works and across different homes and obviously getting to interface with the clinical services and food services as well in that role. And along the way, it really evolved into, what are the barriers and challenges to the long-term sustainability of food fortification? Um, People are talking about it or it's being implemented into practice, but it's not being sustained long-term. Why is this happening? Um, The literature is clearly saying that in like long-term care settings, especially aged care, which has moved really towards end-of-life care, that we should be using a food-first approach, at least as a frontline strategy, or, you know, if that's, uh, it's usually preferred. Some people do prefer oral, oral nutrition supplements. There's definitely a place for multiple strategies. But why can't we get this to work? Or when we are doing it, it's, okay, we have a fortified milkshake. That's it. Or there's just no versatility of personalization, which is exactly what the HK quality standards are calling for. Mm. Um, so my PhD includes six studies. Uh, awesome. Again, awesome. That's claim. so good. Yeah. But with interruptions from COVID, it's very much smaller studies, more of them trying to build the picture of of what's happening in the space and, I guess, what we can do about it. So starting off with a narrative review conducted systematically to really set the scene, see what research has been done on food fortification in the setting. They're all very short-term studies looking at, you know, intake across a couple of week period nothing really talking about why strategies aren't sustained long term and very much with the usual talk of type of either a powder ingredient or like putting food into food as your fortification ingredient um but no one was really talking about what i was interested in which again is great because you need to do something new with your phd uh moving on i did a feasibility study looking at various data collection tools to be able to measure like acceptability of different fortified food and drinks with aged care residents um, which then led into actually collecting that data in three homes so I used a modified meal assessment tool uh, which was developed by two researchers in Queensland including one of my PhD supervisors so she was already very familiar with the tool Um, and just seeing I guess, what products were acceptable with the two different ingredients. And uh, from that study, you could really see the versatility of, uh, of having a liquid and the fact that it's very difficult to fortify, say, a cup of coffee with a powder fortification ingredient, but you can put a liquid into it, quick stir, uh, it just disappears. Mm. Yeah. Um, after that, I did another quantitative study uh based at an aged care home in perth um so at the time we were in like border restrictions i had to hire a research assistant that was employed directly through the aged care home in perth so they wouldn't get booted out every time they went into lockdown um and she was collecting data looking at i guess uh dietitian prescribing an individualized strategy which was typically like fortified the beverage of choice at afternoon tea and then she was going through and, and looking at uh percentage of consumption um using almost like a plate waste scale so was you know none consumed a quarter half 75 percent, or 100 percent. and also trying to develop a tool to measure the usability uh, of different ingredients amongst staff which is something that hasn't been measured before within food services or, or dietetics um so we adapted a tool that was used um I think in more of the technology space, like using different software programs, but it had the exact questions that related to if you were using two different products to create recipes. Um, so I have some data on the usability of the two different ingredients from a variety of aged care staff members, from food service to nursing, to allied health, uh, to carers. Um, and then finished with two qualitative studies, so semi-structured interviews with age care staff, um, and then a kind of qualitative analysis, looking at um, interviews, field notes um, across three different studies to really identify some specific barriers and challenges to... Conducting research into the setting that I encountered along the way um, that weren't just COVID. So I think for a couple of years the excuse was, "Oh, COVID's the reason why we can't do this," but it it was so much bigger than that and, and much more complex, and probably why we've got limited research in the aged care sector um, in general.
0: Mm. Well, I've, I've written down so much here, <laughs> and I just want to say thank you so much for doing research in this area. Like I think anyone who is either you know alive today or um, Has grandparents or has had grandparents in one of these settings, and you know, possibly you may also end up in one of them yourselves, depending how your grandkids or or children decide to do with what with you. You know, when you get to a certain age, or uh, um, or if you're difficult to look after, or not not being you as a person, but you know, with uh, the challenges that come with you know end of life or you know aged care, and so um, it does touch everyone. So thank you so much, and you know, uh, for doing what you're doing because as we know in Australia, you know, there's, you know, at the Royal Commission looking into aged yeah. care food and, and I've even been in there when my nana was in there and it's like, and she uh, was on uh, uh, Minster Moist or even perhaps puree and she was just saying, you know, just regardless if she, she was my nana or, you know, or not, you couldn't explain to her why or the or the reasons or... Because they're just, they're just people and they've been eating at their own homes, their tea and toast for as long as they know, And then something clinically happens and they have to change and it's very hard. So um, something like fortification, which you've explained, um, is something that's very essential, you know, to help these people to continue to function and continue to be happy with their days that they do have remaining. So um, thanks so much, Danielle.
1: No, it's the exact reason I'm interested in this space. And it's it's complicated because it's seen as almost, you know, like a healthcare setting, but it's also home for the people that live there. While also functioning as a workplace and as you know a, a place that you go to receive care, it's a really complicated setting. But I, I don't think we're doing it well enough yet. And it's a mm. perfect time for change. And it's it's not going to be okay for the generations that are about to come in. They're not going to accept what we're currently providing within the system. But we don't have the solutions yet, so we. We need to do research to figure out how we can, I guess, provide some solutions, and and especially in food and nutrition, and that receives so much attention in the Royal Commission, and um, unfortunately, highlighting probably some of the worst examples from the sector, and even the people that are already doing amazing things and leading the way were were impacted by that attention.
0: Mm. And I even can remember back to my you know aged care placement. I think I was in second or third year, and the lady uh, was saying, you know, like when we're in aged care, if we are there one day, we'll want sushi and pizza and, yeah. you know, like Guzman, Mike Gomez or whatever you want to call it. And those things are not in aged care at the moment. How, how how are they going to adapt to different age groups coming through in the future and what they type of, you know, their food palette and what they, you know, a lot of us probably still grew up on meat and three veg and potato or whatever, but that's getting phased out, you know. And so what's going to happen when... Uh, myself or my children if I have children are in what are they going to be eating you know it has to completely um cater to those um you know individuals but also populations as well so something that's really interesting to see what happens
1: I know and I mean special diets are going to start coming through and increased number of allergies it's going to get more complex um You don't see that many, I guess, vegans or vegetarians. Um, There's definitely people that prefer to not eat certain meats, whether it be I don't really like pork or I don't have red meat. But the majority are very much that British meat and free veg, and that's what the current menus very much cater for. Uh, But that's not going to be the reality um, in a couple of decades' time. It's going to look so different.
0: And so I've written a few things down. So the liquid... Are you able to talk about the liquid or it's still like secret sauce at the moment?
1: It's a little bit secret. Um, Unfortunately, I did not develop it. I get no money from its sale if it ends up going to market, Mm. uh, which is how it should be. But uh, it would be nice if I got to make... I don't think dietitians ever do it to get rich out of um, selling solutions. But someone else came up with the idea. Um, Sorry, there's only... I guess I can disclose some stuff about it. But the final product... uh, there's not a decision yet whether it's coming to market or not mm. um, and what that kind of final formulation or packaging is going to look
0: like. Yeah, amazing. And something that for just for those at home, I guess, you know, I always explain even as like I think what you talked about, like fortification of food. So say, for example, you have your mashed potato at home. Um, you know, you can add milk, butter, um, you know, olive oil, uh, those types of things to ensure that you're getting more energy out of the Typically, the same amount of volume of food, um, and that's that's what fortification kind of means. With what um, Danielle has been talking about, is that kind of how you explain it, you know, as well? Or
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. Got my kind of standards feel about you know the addition of ingredients where you're making food more nutrient dense, um, but without increasing the volume or even offering a smaller volume. So definitely getting more bang for every bite.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's kind of what we want in this population in terms of they're not, you know, where I come in, you know, they're not usually eating a lot of what they eat. Um, and yeah. that's to, to a, a multiple of reasons that you could write, you know, across the sky. But um, and that's why things like what Danielle's doing is really important to make sure that that nutrition is getting delivered to the people uh, that we care about. And ONS. So, you know a lot of strategies that people do you know people have their protein shakes or they have their you know the little poppers and stuff and so it's kind of similar isn't it with the, you know the the addition of the powder to like the big recipe of the cake or whatever um in terms of you know uh i guess you do call it a protein powder but like ensure or um uh, what's it? sausage and things like that yeah. so yeah yeah so um something that i still have in my diet now you know a protein shake but just a bit different <laughs>
1: exactly and they're almost on a bit of a continuum where you're starting with you know recipes where you can add fruit into fruit to add more nutrients or you can add these kind of commercial products into food um and then getting to it being a, you know an entire uh O&S or you know a pre-prepared mm. product that you're you're having and the reality is different people lack different products or different approaches or the kind of what they would find easier to consume varies very much individual to individual and the problem we really have at the moment is there's no versatility and taste fatigue is is the main issue and that's what I guess ONS is criticized for is the fact well if you need to have you know one or more of these drinks every day how long is it going to take until you really don't want to drink it again and Fortification could be a solution, but not if your only alternative is a fortified milkshake. And so, it's essentially the same thing—a sweet, milky drink. Uh, not much versatility there. What if it's the middle of winter and you want something hot, but you've been told that morning tea you must have this milkshake? Um, so, it's trying to find strategies, and this is where I guess new ingredients can make a difference. Is how can we? Uh, implement something that you have that versatility to at point of service change what it goes into and and know that that's going to be acceptable to the person so particularly when it comes to things like drinks um that can change day to day like yes people might have you know a coffee at breakfast or morning tea but on a really hot day they might not want that um and all of a sudden if you're trying to force them to have something they don't want they're probably not going to consume it but if you can give them what they want and still fortify it that's your strategy being able to work day in day out and be able to, I guess, adapt to prevent taste fatigue from happening.
0: And have you cheeky question? Have you tried the liquid, like in your own coffee oh, or anything?
1: Yes, um, I did all the like initial recipe development with it and been there amongst kind of multiple iterations. Um, so it's neutral flavoured. Uh, it does have a bit of sweetness to kind of hide the real protein, amino acid taste. Mm. Um, so I guess where I found it not working as well is it's someone that really likes a black coffee. If you add it in, it's going to add a bit of sweetness. Mm. So they're going to notice if they love that bitterness that comes with like a black coffee. But if you pop it in, even a coffee that's just got a bit of milk added to it, you can't really taste it as much because that does add, you know, a tiny bit of sweetness. It's probably a bit sweeter still, but not hugely noticeable. In things like orange juice, cordials, anything that's already a bit sweet, completely undetectable even um, to someone young that probably has a really sensitive palate for changes in taste. Um, in a serve of the product, which is about 30 mils, so like a shot, mm. uh, 10 grams of protein. Yeah, wow. You can't do that with food or existing ingredients. No. And have an acceptable product at the end.
0: Yeah, set them up at the gym, just bang, when you walk out you don't have two of those and you're out of there like how good
1: <laughs> i know I, I see it being applied to different areas um, yeah even people that yeah, just trying to get an extra protein around uh, their gym workouts could be interested yeah yeah um, just another way of getting you know and to be able to interface better with food um, there's certain products that i've tested it in thinking you know maybe this will work like i put it in gravy mm. did not like it in gravy i could really taste like sweet gravy didn't didn't do it for me but again my palette's going to be different to someone in aged care and to each individual person so part of the way is going okay what do I think about this with this work but also it was really important to do a study where I went to the residents and got to do taste testing or observe their intake of it to see whether it would be acceptable to them or not.
0: That's awesome you've done so much already and there's so much like obviously like you said there's a few unknown questions but there's so much more to do to try and you know depending if the product does go forward or not, doesn't matter. Like the questions still kind of remain. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it still opens up another opportunity and hopefully the food industry comes along and starts to think about some solutions to the current challenges we have, because I think they will need to involve, you know, innovative ideas and entrepreneurship and probably technology that again, it's, that collaboration where a dietitian probably couldn't have come up with this alone. The original idea for the product was a food technologist who has a much better understanding of how you can actually create products like this, um, but was interested in the whole, well, if we're going to go to all this effort to try and create something, what does the sector actually want? Um, And would they use it?
0: Yeah, I think there's, I can't, is it the QFIST or something? I can't remember what the group's called, Queensland Food Innovation. I went to like and did a a seminar at UQ with this, um, do you know what it's called?
1: It might be coffee, but we've got quite a few different abbreviations, so even I forget them all.
0: And um, like (laughs) I was the only dietitian there, and they were all food scientists, and I was like, wow, these people can like solve all our problems that, you know, dietitians have clinically, we say, hey, make a product to do this, and they they love it, right? They want to make something new, you know, potentially make a billion dollars, whatever, that's great, uh, but... The best outcome is the you know the better patient care or the you know the better outcome for athletes or you know kids um getting their nutrition a certain way or like there's it's there's such a i guess a disparity but such an, a good opportunity for collaboration and we're actually doing some stuff at um i'm an r a at deakin and looking at like um what are people doing outside of just you know your standard fortification to try and change um you know what aged care and hospitals um uh are putting on the plate, you know, and I'll talk to you about that off air. I'm not really sure what my, um, my, my, my what I'm allowed to say, <laughs> not say. Um, oh, yeah. But what did you find? That were that the barriers, that, like I think, you know, when I look at my food service place, and it's like I was in Bowen, like there was in like in the middle of North Queensland, like a twenty thirty bed hospital. I think at the time it was like getting renovated, and. Like it was two chefs. Do you know what I mean? They got to make all this food like from scratch every day. Uh, there was nothing like it was like cooked fresh, right? So, how do we like? What was that? Some of the barriers that you were seeing. It, it was that type of food service, or you know, t- talk us through what some of the challenges were for the fortification or M&S.
1: There's so many. Like, I think, honestly, to begin with, it's almost starting with a lack of understanding of the nutritional requirements of the population and Mm. that um, actually by the time you're in residential aged care, the public health messages that you've been hearing your entire life to prevent chronic disease no longer apply to you. Mm. It's not about getting as many vegetables in as possible and these high-volume eating to keep you full and stop overeating junk food. And it's the time that you can give... Edith her you know scones at morning tea and encourage her to have whatever she wants and liberalised diets like you know you still see the kind of over prescription of some restrictive diets you know whether it's like a diabetic diet that for decades we've been saying is not necessary in this group um, they're not the aged care like generation that was there 30 years ago when it was more kind of retirement living with a bit of care people are very frail and and sick or, uh, you know, vulnerable. By the time they're in residential aged care, it's usually not their choice to be there. They would rather be at home, but for mm. whatever reason, they had to go in there. So I think part of the underlying issues is that kind of lack of understanding that also filters down through, um, you know, the HK care quality standards are a little bit vague in terms of uh, what is required nutrition-wise and um, that doesn't help enforce I guess what's happening you know there's not no mention of fruit first nutrition support strategies in there it's something about food should be nutritious and varied like what does that mean yeah I couldn't even interpret that let alone if you were um, someone that had no background in you know nutrition uh so you've got you kind of underlying like what do these people actually need uh, that probably fundamentally needs to change and then staffing is so complex um, high rates of staff turnover very very busy hard-working staff that work within fruit services um there is a huge list of tasks that need to be completed each day barely enough time to have a cup of tea or a lunch break mm. um, so if you're trying to add to people's plates and they're already completely overworked and then someone else was just put in their notice and they're trying to replace them and doing double shifts in the meantime. You know, that's actually the reality uh, across the entire year over the last five or so years that I've seen the sector. And COVID just made that issue 10 times harder. But it was already there. Mm. So uh, that makes another challenge in terms of actually sustaining things long term because even if you get someone that is really passionate and wants to implement something if they then go in and leave that position often it just doesn't continue or there's constantly new staff that need to be trained just on the basics the basics of what to do for their tasks um, so those are kind of some of the things i've uncovered there's definitely more there's a whole other issue of research into aged care is just not the same as uh, like the partnerships that researchers have with hospitals, for example, that are probably at least 10 years ahead of the aged care sector because there's so much research constantly happening and, you know, the big tertiary hospitals that's um, hopefully translated and filtered down to other hospitals in the sector, but we're just not getting that in aged care. And I found it particularly difficult to recruit for studies when, You're not a staff member, you know, they don't really have that buy-in. And once they get busy, it's so easy to say, look, I was interested, but we really just can't do this right now. And often it's not because they don't want to or they don't value the research. It's just that they genuinely don't have time and it's not considered part of their usual practice or role. Uh, But how can we change that? Because that's really what's going to be driving um, solutions into the sector and making, hopefully, the lives of staff a lot more easier as well as getting... Um, solutions for residents that's going to help improve their day to day life as well.
0: Yeah, kind of similar to what you said there about you know when we're talking about percentage of academics, it's like you could have a percentage of like well, QI like twenty percent or ten percent, and then like into being interviewed or do it, looking at something that you know they may not necessarily have research skills, but um, you know consulting out to whoever is available to say what can we do to improve our food service, you know, um, within the aged care setting that can be part of that, you know, quarter of a day or half a day or just um, what we are talking about before. About you know, it's hard to quantify, but as long as it's being included, then it's in the conversation and it's like, well, it's not just day-to-day survival. It's like, how can we make this better for everyone, including the staff and the, you know, the, the families and the patients. Um, um, so, yeah. And I think I've kind of – I'm going to talk to you after because I've got so much to say. But... Um, <laughs> I've kind of also uncovered some of the same stuff in my research, like, you know, the time that's available in the, in these settings is, like, zero. It's like, if you just, if listeners, imagine the busiest you've ever been, and times it by 10, um, that's how these, like, these kitchens run. Like, it's just, like, unbelievably, yeah. That's without something
1: chaotic happening, which always yeah. does occasionally pop up.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, then, hey, someone not t- taps you on the shoulder and go hey, do this, and you go, are you kidding? Like, have you seen how many meals we've got to get out in the next five minutes? Like... Um, and that's like it's just chaos really Uh, and as well as the the, we talked about with this population where you can put in something really cool but as soon as that champion goes it's going to drop off and it's like then it's like the new practice is not really here anymore that was something that jennifer did jennifer's gone let's just go back to what we used to do before she was here um because there's not that person checking or or staying on top of it or actually doing it in front of everyone else and so that's really cool. I'm going to have to start reading a lot more of your stuff just to see. <laughs> get well,
1: a few. Well, that's the problem. With dietitians, uh, for the most part, are external consultants to the sector. They're not employed directly, or if they are, they're still visiting multiple homes. They're not there every day. Um, I guess some of my best or main findings of my thesis is really, like, why do we not have the role of a food and nutrition champion? on site every day it's part of their role Mm. to be monitoring um feeding back to the dietitian making sure things are happening as they should especially in terms of nutrition support but noting things that aren't going as well there's no one really that takes on that responsibility um but you see almost the role of maybe a nutrition assistant or dietetic assistant in the hospital that takes away some of that burden and interfaces between clinical and fruit services Uh, why can't we do something like that it's desperately needed um, to stay on top and to have that sustainability and have more than one person because you need to do this Monday through to Sunday and if one person leaves there can't be their sole responsibility there needs to be other people that can be trained and and stay on top of it
0: even like double something as simple as like double checking the idzie like is this person on a mince moist or not are they in a puree and it's like People don't. I remember being at Logan Hospital and on the foods on the plating line, and it was like it was like pointing and screaming if something was like not the right um, texture because it's that it's that's such a high risk thing. And if not everyone, if that person who's trained is not there on the day and they don't pick that up, that could lead to something real bad. And you know we don't want to have that. And so like you said, having something like a nutrition champion um, who knows what they're doing, particularly a dietitian, um, would be able to you know reduce risk and you know. Improve most likely, in my opinion, would improve intake, right? Uh, with that's an, that's not an evidence based opinion. That's just something that I just <laughs> I just said, um, but you know, something that I think we could both agree on. And I'm really and like if
1: someone monitoring. Like you even think about so many times I see huge amounts of food waste from unpopular menu items that are never changed because mm. they're just on the menu, and it's like, why isn't someone here that's going this is the feedback I'm hearing from the dining room. This is not popular. Look at all the waste. Mm. What are we doing about it? Let's yeah. sit down and, and make some changes. And that's always the quality improvement that's not even happening. And it's because, you know, they, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking stuff. Yeah. They're so busy. Mm. They're not sitting around having a two hour lunch break while all this is happening. They're running flat off their feet, just trying to get the meal out on time. Um, so we do have to really think about how this can be done and what's, what should be part of the role and I guess coming back to bringing the, the hospitality back to the sector, like it shouldn't be that everything's done behind closed doors in a kitchen miles away from the dining room. Let's bring back that actual dining environment and atmosphere and, and have those conversations so that everything about that experience is what the residents want
0: yeah underground no windows like you can't really breathe in there it's not the greatest (laughs) environment to want to go work in you know um but it's something that um i've even seen i think i went up to sunshine coast hospital the the new one. i can't remember what it's called stars and it was like they have the um on one of the levels or each level i think they have like a dining where all all the food comes from the food service and you can go it's like a canteen there all the patients can come out if they choose and and you know it was different with covid but um it's like going to the lunchroom, you know, with your friends. And, like, what a good thing to just hang out with some other patients and meet people and stuff like that, you know. First of all, for the patient's care and, and their well-being, but also to get their nutrition intake hopefully higher, you know. Um, so this is just, we could just be here until bloody 6 p.m. But I, won't, I won't hold you that uh, that long. Um, I really like what you said about as well as the difference between and I noticed when I was on my placement a long time ago in palliative care, and he's like, why are you giving my mum this? Or, you know, and it's like, mate, if she wants a Fredo frog, like, it's all good. Do you know what I mean? Like, if she wants a breaker, she'd have two. Like, we're on the palliative care ward. Like, dude, I'm sorry, but, like, this is real tough for you, but your mum doesn't want to eat th- meat and three veg, you know, while she's here, you know? Um, oh, and, it,
1: and it's not common knowledge, I think, you know, staff and family are almost just trying to think about what they know about health and nutrition and you know throw those messages but I don't know I just feel like maybe we need to make or we'll be doing things at a bigger level to make it clearer on, on what actually is required and why do we take the focus away from quality of life and and what someone actually wants to me it's it's absolutely baffling
0: Mm. It's not like the people in these situations are thinking about their physique or their, you know, their training outcomes or even how much, if they get in their two and five, these people are thinking about, okay, um, I can't even really say what they're going to say because I don't know, I've never been in that situation, but it's like, I just want to feel comfortable, I want to enjoy my food, probably most likely not eat too much because, um, that they don't want to get up and <laughs> so you and go to the toilet, you know. Like there's lots of different things that would be going on in these people's lives who uh, you know, nutrition is not their number one priority, right? You know. Whereas when we're young and thirty or you know in our in our unaged care years, nutrition is an important thing of our lives. You know, to keep us healthy and alive. And but at that end, um, it's not the most. It's not the tip of the iceberg, really, is it? No,
1: it's more about how can we prevent weight loss and you know the exacerbation of muscle wasting at that point and at the end of the day if it's done through foods that they enjoy it you know keeping up energy and protein as much as possible without you know obviously forcing someone to really consume weight more than they can mm. Uh, that should be what it comes down to We're not trying to, you know, shove half a plate of vegetables At every mealtime to, to fill people up They've had, you know, God, maybe 80 years of eating their vegetables <laughs> Let them have some cake or yeah. something else at this point in their life
0: That'd be a good title for like a paper Like have their cake and eat it too type of thing or something <laughs> like that It's a bit clever Now I'd like you to tell us about one of your favourite papers of yours That you've written uh, And then something for the listeners to read as well
1: Okay, well, look, it wasn't too hard about the paper i papers, or favourite paper I've written, because I've only written two so far, so um, that did make it nice and easy. And my favourite is probably a qualitative uh, research paper that was published back in 2021, yeah, last year. Um, so that was uh, interviews with aged care staff. Um, and I was really looking at finding out what they thought the role of food services and also opportunities to make positive changes. And um, specifically, I did delve a little bit into the delivery of food fortification and why it is or isn't happening. Um, But also some of those more just broader food service things. Um, And I spoke to dietitians, food service workers, managers, um, carers, nurses, like a variety of people to try and get those different perspectives. Um, And that's probably... Uh, one of those pivotal, pivotal moments in PhD that helped drive what I was thinking and doing next. So that's where I started to really um, learn more about this concept of food and nutrition champions and having teamwork to champion nutrition um, based on what people were saying, what isn't happening in practice. Um, so that would probably be my, my favourite paper of mine.
0: And um, what is the title of that? Do you know by, by chance?
1: Oh, I did just open it so I could do this if needed to. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, So it's published in Nutrients and it's called Food and Nutrition Champions in Residential Aged Care Homes, A Key for Sustainable Systems Change Within Food Services, Results from a Qualitative Study of Stakeholders. Uh, nice short title there.
0: Yeah, nice. And how did you find the qualitative approach? Because you did also say that you did a quantitative study uh, early in today's episode, so Did you, you know, which method did you like more and why?
1: Well, my PhD was mixed methods, which I think was really important because Mm, there was answers that I wasn't going to get from both types of data, but actually bringing them together, I guess, to discuss and conclude in my thesis is how I got to this point. Um, I'm not going to lie, that being my first qualitative study, um, just the learning how to do the methods and actually analyze that data is probably one of the harder parts of my PhD and took way longer than I thought it was going to. Mm. Um, But after doing it once um, and so I did it using thematic analysis by the methods um, described by Bron and Clark, um, which is I guess very common in in health and dietetics. Uh, But now that I know how to do it, it's, was so powerful to actually talk to people and get their point of view and ask them the questions that I just couldn't get from the literature. So I used my review to really um, find some gaps that I wanted to ask staff about. Um, So, yeah, I would definitely recommend um, doing or delving into qualitative at some point and and giving it a go because it's really powerful, some of the things that you can find from the data.
0: Or some of the quotes you get and you're like, wow, this is like gold, and you just go... How did that, how did that even person know that I wanted to hear that, you know?
1: (laughs) Sometimes they articulate it better than, you know, you have ever thought and you've been thinking about it a lot. You're like,
0: wow, that is it. Yeah, that's what, you know, and that's like what, you know, the reason you're doing the research is done to cover those things as well. So that's very cool. And the, sorry, the, um, sorry to interrupt with that question, but something to recommend the listeners to read.
1: So, look, I've been doing a lot of writing lately and not reading, so I thought long and hard about this one. Um, But a paper that I have read recently and also used it to write my discussion chapter and my thesis. um, For anyone that's doing a PhD or trying to do an integrated discussion, this paper is absolute gold. Um, So it's by... Lewis et al. um, was published in 2021, and it's called Writing a Compelling Integrated Discussion, a guide for integrated discussions in article-based theses and dissertations. And for anyone that's trying to write a a PhD thesis, um, no matter where you are, I think the kind of common thing that's often discussed is the fact that like no one knows what it should look like and that everyone interprets it a bit different. Supervisors want different things. And this paper just perfectly summarised how you can bring together multiple chapters of conclusions and discussion into a nice uh, flow, you know, gives guidance on what subheadings you, sh- you should use, um, as well as like an indication of roughly how many pages it should take up the different sections. Um, and it's something that you can do from study one and start filling out a table of your key findings from that study and think about early on. Um, I didn't do it that way. I waited till right at the end and found the paper and went, this is gold, Um, but would highly recommend it to anyone doing a PhD or trying to integrate uh, multiple sources of data into a coherent uh, and compelling discussion.
0: Yeah, I'm going to read that. That looks amazing. I'm obviously going to read your other paper too, Uh, but this one, like, this is something that I'm, you know, I'll probably I'll cite yours and then I'll use this to um, to support my myself in one year's time when I'm putting this all together. Um, That's amazing. What a good find. And how did you find this one?
1: It was funny. I wrote a draft of my discussion chapter, as you do, mm. and then sat down with um, one of my advisors and we're kind of going, oh, how should we structure this? What do we think? Um, and she pulled up her most recently graduated student and went, I'm pretty sure she cited a paper that she said was really good. And her discussion got really good feedback from the examiners. And in like the first sentence reference this paper. Um, and so I had a read through her, um, discussion chapter and was like wow this is incredible and this is not how mine is currently structured and then went and found the original paper I just went wow if I had this two weeks ago mm. might not have uh, you know gone so astray with my draft one um and yeah that was probably only only about a month ago sorry Every person that um, I know that's doing a PhD, I somehow slip it into conversation of, "Oh, have you of this paper? Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> it. Give it a read. Get the Harry Potter mail out where it just keeps coming until you open it. Like I reckon that's the way to do. Yeah, that's a good one. That's very cool, and um, a good way to find it as well as you know, you know, past colleagues or or current colleagues. It's always good to to um, I guess question them and say, you know, how did you do this? You know, because they all are still learning. It's not like it's um, it's not really told. It's just kind of like you can figure it out yourself or there's someone else to not hold your hand, but support you into how to do it your way. Cause every PhD thesis is different. So that's really cool. Um, and I'm just having a look through it. It looks like a very like, you know, step-by-step, this is what you should do. Like throw this in here. That's very cool. Cause I think when you got three and a half years, uh, from research to pull it down into one, you know, 10, you know, let's say, I don't know how big it is to say 10 pages. Um, It's not hard. It's not, sorry, it's not easy. Like, it's not going to be something to think, what did I think about on day one and what I think about now? So that's amazing.
1: I know, and it's usually the last chapter you write. So, like, for me, it was, this is so important. I'm bringing everything together. What am I concluding? What do I want the key points to be? But I'm exhausted (laughs) and I just need someone to tell me what I should put on this paper. Um, So I found that really helpful to finally have what felt like a bit more of a framework around how I should be writing it up and um to especially to know that someone else did it this way and got really good feedback on it being well structured and coherent and and clear and I was like that's what I want um you know my examiners to say about my discussion
0: because it's so interesting like you know you think about uh and we'll finish on this before I ask you about your coffee so I want to get you to see if you can have a sip at all but um (laughs) I think that I kind of forget, and I think some PhD students will, is like, that at the end of the day, you've got to submit a thesis, two people are going to read it and mark it. That's it. Like, obviously, you've read it 100 times, the supervisor's going to read it, provide feedback, and eventually it's going to come to you to make the decisions to, you know, to press that button to submit it. Um, and I think that it all comes down to this one, you know, click the button, whereas not everyone is going to read it, and that's okay. Like, it's not, yeah. it's not like it's um, something that's going out to the world and to be read by everyone. It's something that is directed to, to certain people. You don't know who they are, but you want to make sure that, because I don't even know who you are, you know. You want to make sure yeah. that you can get your message across to them so clearly that they're just going to be like, yeah, sick, Danielle's got it, tick, 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 boom, boom, boom. And it's, that, it's a hurdle, but it doesn't define the rest of your, you know, you've already got a job, you know, you're an amazing uni, you're a t- you're a lecturer already. Um, so it doesn't define those things. But I think some people get so kneaded down into like, ah, this is the, this is it. Like my whole life is like, nah, it's, it's all good. Two people are going to read it. People don't even know. They're going to think about it. They're going to provide feedback and you're going to go from there. So um, I commend so you
1: to getting God this far. You know, getting it perfect. The reality is like, My friends aren't going to read it from front to back. It's not the most, uh, you know, riveting nighttime reading uh, that you could do. But you need to make sure that it's really clear and that the examiners walk away going, like, you have made a contribution to the field. And that's clear. And I can see that, you know, the work that you put in is uh, enough to be a PhD. Um, So it does feel good to know that it's it's written. Yeah. Like... You know submit it essentially and i mean that's not exactly a two minute process by the time you run it through authenticate and all the other steps involved but yeah i know it's like a constant balance in the write-up of uh, when is enough enough and you, the tweaks that you're doing aren't actually adding anything of, of value
0: and, you know, and like to be honest, you're probably the only person who knows them or can see them as well because you're yeah. so attached to it. Like not you in general, the person writing the thesis, it's like your whole life for three years. So it's not like it's um, something easy to let go of either. So
1: No, exactly.
0: <laughs> now, how was your uh, iced latte out of 10?
1: Okay, well, oh, look, it was probably about a five because I made it and sculled it before we started because I knew I wouldn't drink it. Um, and so I felt like I couldn't really just take the time to appreciate it, um, <laughs> but no, it wasn't
0: bad. That's okay. Out of 10. No, uh, that's all right. That's probably one of the lowest scores I've had. So I'll be interested. <laughs> I'm interested to see what, um, but it's always, it's a lot easier to scull when it's cold than it is when it's hot. I, um, yeah. I really enjoyed mine. I just had two scoops of Makona and a teaspoon, a bunch of ice. And heaps of milk because our milk goes off tomorrow, apparently, to the best before day, but it'll, I'll be using it until Friday. But um, it's uh, and today's uh, Tuesday. Uh, but, yeah, I would say a nine, so I'm pretty stoked with that. So um, thank you so much for sharing a beverage with me and hanging, hanging out this afternoon. Um, and that's the reality of uh, doing these podcasts online at home. We've got Danielle's dog in the back. Saying hello, wanting to contribute to the conversation.
1: She was so good. And, <laughs> and now she's just decided that she's not happy. Any noise outside, like birds tweeting, are apparently a big deal at the moment.
0: That's okay. That's all part of, you know, it's all part of being at home and the challenges and and the, also the, um, I think, the perks as well. You have a little mate there to hang out with you, you know, while you're at the computer or cooking lunch or something like that. It's nice.
1: Yeah, Definitely.
0: Thank you so much again for your time this afternoon, Danielle. Um, And I'll catch up with you soon. You know, good luck tomorrow. Uh, It's going to be so cool uh, to be uh, thinking about, oh, I'm putting this, you know, uh, I guess, uh, audio together. And you'll be sipping by the pool, you know, with your ice latte or your Megito or something like that. No, thank you so much for having me. It was an
1: absolute pleasure.
0: To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Cooks Community. Until next time, remember to breathe.